The Soul of an Internet Machine, a podcast journaling the adventures of a business and a software development team figuring their way through the challenges of launching a new venture. We make the occasional good decision, spend time following bad ones, and get trapped by world events. Ping me, Christina Moore, on Twitter at Seymour underbar SP. That's Charlie Mike, C-M-O-O-R-E underbar SP, or at the website, ChristinaMoore.us. Soul of an Internet Machine, Chapter 10, How to Hold an Axe. I heard a story about a famous film producer who built and kept a team around him for decades. Sure, they made great movies and won awards and got rich. When asked about the team, the producer said, the team speaks in shortcuts. We know what we mean when we say something. Having been a member of elite athletic teams, emergency response teams, and a civilian member of a military team, I can recall the jargon, the slang, the verbal shorthand phrases that we used. Some phrases have slipped into everyday use, and some become cliches. In building our team, we too crafted verbal shortcuts into our language and communication. They intend to convey critical thinking points and critical steps. In the last chapter, number nine, called The First Minute, I introduced the question, are you walking the dog or is the dog walking you? This question helps our team explore who or what is in control over process. The other day, I accidentally touched our new washing machine and it made funny noises, a click, and it started to spin. I wondered if I caused that. I wondered if I had turned it on, if my accidental touch hit the control panel. I tripped and the washing machine steadied me. The washing machine, though, was already in a cycle. My touch didn't do a damn thing. Are you walking the dog or is the dog walking you? Reminds a programmer or anyone that sometimes things happen. Sometimes we make things things happen. We need to know the difference. Academically and formally, one is questioning whether a relationship between two events is causal or correlated. I suppose our team could ask, are you confident you have complete control over the causal aspects of the behavior? We're humans working together. We prefer cute. We like slang, like that famous movie guy The linguistic shortcuts remind us of what matters to us, reminds us of the traps we have all fallen into. Today, I'm going to explore the phrase, trust the tools. The other phrases that I'm going to explore in upcoming episodes include PST, baby, primary, secondary, tertiary. Begin with the end in mind. You're a tool maker. Make tools. The long pole. It's just work. Baby steps. Where are you going? What do you have? What do you need to get there? Train the way you fight. Fight the way you train. Maintain parallel structure. Let the data be your guide. Follow the data. Storytelling with data. Let the data tell you a story. If you don't look past the horizon, there is no tomorrow. It's time to paint with a little brush. Charlie Mike. Up, over, down, under, through, around. Box the unknown with the known. When skiing trees, look at the gaps. When troubleshooting, be suspicious the last thing you did. Know the difference between busy and working. And don't let the enemy of better be best. And the last thing that we like to remind each other of once in a while is when swimming toward shore, make sure it's getting closer. I could not call this episode Trust the Tools because the word tool has several alternate definitions in American slang, and some are rather derogatory. Instead, I named the chapter How to Hold an Axe. 
software developers, as I've mentioned before in this podcast, are the modern-day toolsmiths. While we may not stand at a forge and bang on metal, the thought process, the design process, and our operational understandings reflect our heritage linking us with earlier toolsmiths. Whether they stood by a fire and banged metal or napped at stone with other stone, we recognize each other as smiths. Of the fundamental tools is the humble axe. The axe, recognizable with a stone fastened to a stick, is about 8,000 years old, according to Wikipedia. The axe is about 8,000 years older than software. The hand axe, a sharpened stone without the attached wooden handle, is about 1.5 million years old. That hand axe is still recognizable in our kitchens and workshops as a knife. Axes do not come with instruction manuals. Most, at least those sold in the United States, do not come with warning signs or instructions. Yet, both ends of an axe are dangerous. It is a sharp chunk of metal attached to a stout stick of wood. The humble axe is one of our oldest tools. Ancient humans tied sharpened stone to sticks, then whacked stuff. As a software developer, I use some of the most modern tools on the planet. Software as a tool is an invention of the 20th century. I acknowledge the precursors to software found on weaving machines and tabulating machines of the latter part of the 19th century. Some of these machines relied on instructions punched into paper. But for practical definition, software as we know it dates from the recent 100 years, the 20th century. Why is a thoroughly modern toolsmith discussing sticks and stones? I mean, axes and knives. We, software developers, make tools. Trust your tools is a pole star phrase, a guiding phrase used on our team. Cliché is not the right term, but touchstone or unifying concept. Like asking a teammate, you know, are you walking the dog or is the dog walking you? It serves as a fundamental principle of our teamwork. Our common ancestors use tools to make other tools. They use tools to make the stone axe. That's less obvious to us all, isn't it? Archaeologists recognized stone tools because these tools were fabricated by humans. Someone sat to shape and sharpen a stone, normally flint or chert, with another tool. Artisans flaked away bits of stone, creating a cutting edge to meet the needs of the day, such as rendering a a tree into firewood or cut meat following a successful hunt. I sure would love to take the moment of this chapter and this topic, Trust Your Tools, to detail the right way to do all things, including using the suite of tools that my teammates and I use to make software applications. The very moment I try, I fail. Right and wrong have little meaning to the artisan. I acknowledge that both right and wrong are my opinions. I have used an axe as a walking stick, as a hammer, as an anvil, as a step, a weapon, oh, and as an axe to help maintain hiking trails on our land here in southern Vermont. I have even tossed axes at targets. I cannot sincerely tell you the right way to use an axe, and I cannot tell you the right way to write software either. We, software developers, differ in every possible way. Each of us practices our craft with a specialization and sufficient pride that our opinions resonate like doctrine. Oh, I have doctrine, and I whack my teammates with my doctrine striving for uniformity. That's called team building, and it also relates to the training of apprentice programmers. 
the apprentice is taught there exists the right way to do something. The apprentice learns the rules. The journeyman, and I can't find a gender-neutral phrase for the term, supervises apprentices and enforces the rules. Along the way, the journeyman gradually discovers that the very strict rules and doctrine have flexibility. The doctrine is often best effort, evolving and improving. The master artisan interprets the public norms, the public expectations, and writes the rules, creates the doctrine. The apprentice learns the rules. The journeyman enforces the rules. The master writes the rules. There are so many ways of exploring this relationship. The young music student learns finger placement and scales. There is a right way and a wrong way. Listen to nearly any teacher to hear variations on this phrase. In our shop, I will emphatically tell a young programmer that embedding procedural code inside of Oracle Apex is wrong. Put your code in a package that is compiled in the database. It will run faster. It is stored compiled. It is easier to find. It is consistent with the team's practice. And yet, we deliberately break this rule when we need to. It takes time, effort, and research to know when to break a rule. One might think that knowing how to hold an axe is simple. Grab the wooden stick whilst holding the sharp metal head away from your body is a good start. But is it? Where should one start a lesson on holding an axe or writing software or building a tool? Beyond the obvious statement that the sharp metal head is dangerous, nothing else is entirely obvious to a rookie or a newbie. I should start the lesson about how to hold an axe without the axe. This is how you stand, creating a firm athletic stance with feet below hips, knees slightly bent, hips open with the foot below the dominant hand, back behind the other foot. Where does the power of an axe swing come from? I may just explore the strongest and largest muscles employed during the swing of an axe. And sometimes the twin statements of identifying the sharpest and strongest part of an axe needs to strike the target precisely. The first statement requires knowing the anatomy of an axe and which bits are the strongest and the sharpest. The second statement requires understanding the anatomy and vulnerability of the target. A tennis lesson, a squash lesson, a baseball batting lesson all start with the same fundamentals. Even a skiing lesson starts with the basics of body mechanics and the importance of deliberate movement. Your first piano lesson or violin lesson began with someone sculpting your body to optimize strength, movement, and agility. I sit at a desk with three monitors. The body mechanics of thriving and enjoying a lifetime of software development followed the same basic lessons. Learning to master an axe, a kitchen knife, writing prose, writing software, share common roots in the phrase, trust your tools. The first of these lessons is trust your tools. Lesson one, know your tools, their strengths, their weaknesses, and their off-book uses. Lesson two, take care of your tools. Lesson three, Develop skills, practices, and strengthen your abilities regularly. Lesson four, know the difference between the right tool, a good enough tool, and the wrong tool. Lesson one, know your tools. I took a hiatus during the winter holidays at the end of 2020. We celebrated many of the holidays. We did the menorah, latkes, and cider donuts for Hanukkah. 
My niece got the prayer right many nights. She was a bit rusty. We lit the candles again, adding one per day, starting on the solstice, expressing hope for the return of light and the hope for 2021. We honored a few of the Christian traditions as well at Christmas. In short, the family pod unit cooked often and a lot. Each holiday required its own feast. Feasting in rural Vermont means knife skills, butchering, food prep, and related. We buy meats from neighbors. We buy a half lamb each year from Andy. We buy beef from Sunrise Farm. We buy chicken and eggs from Cooper's Coop. We have three freezers here. And in the mudroom, which is as cold as a refrigerator, we have a plastic tub filled with our potatoes and one with carrots. My niece moved in with us during the duration of this pandemic. I observed that I got super grumpy when she grabbed my chef's knife. I discovered that I regarded that one tool with propriety and strict ownership. My brain screamed out, that's my knife. This emotional response surprised me. I do not feel that way about any other knife or tool in the kitchen. And one should never feel propriety like that when getting help in the kitchen. In short, I bought Rachel the identical knife. And that meant teaching the 36-year-old woman how to handle a knife and how to get to know her knife. Simultaneously, we both pushed our skills as we explored and enjoyed preparing our feasts. We studied her body mechanics, body position, weight distribution, foot position, in the very same analysis as one goes through when handling an axe or a tennis racket. Some mornings start with sharpening and care of the knife. Don't touch metal stuff like drying racks with your knife. Never drag your blade across a surface to scoop food. Flip your blade over, then use the dull side. Learn the strengths of your knife. Sharpening carries me to a zen and a peaceful place. We hone and polish the blades through various grits and then finish on a leather strop. You can see sharp. And no, my fellow geeks, I didn't say see sharp, which is a programming language. And to my music teacher friends, I didn't say C-sharp. In the right light, you can see the sharpness of your blade. Caring for the blade means also caring for the sharpening stones and the honing leather. It brings pride. We sharpen our chef's knives. We sharpen the lovely boning knife and the paring knife. As we work, we study the various grips we took on the knife or knives. We'd roll a blade, shifting the blade from wrist side to finger side, seemingly backward. We'd hold a knife short with our hand up on the bolster and even a finger down the back of the blade. Each movement of the knife and our grip reflected the intended cut. For New Year's Eve, we prepared a crown roast of lamb. This dish is rather posh and fussy to prepare. So fussy that most would order a crown roast from a professional butcher. We have four racks of lambs, two from the 2020 lamb and two from this year's lamb. We save them for special dinner parties. It's not an everyday food. With the pandemic, there are no parties, there's no honored guests, and the fancy lamb remained frozen. We pulled two racks from the freezer, each rack containing seven ribs. One possible presentation of racks of lamb ribs involved roasting both of them, then tenting the rack with the bone tips interlaced. Looks lovely, and the oohs and ahs go for the quality of the roast. We opted for the crown roast. You make a small S-shaped cut at the base of each rib bone, near where the backbone was. This S-shaped cut 
permits the rack of ribs to form a semicircle. Then to enhance the look, one Frenches the tips of each rib bone. You remove the meat, conductive tissue, and fat on the top three centimeters of the bone. I observe that we use three knives while we work. The chef's knife, the boning knife, and a dull kitchen table knife, like a butter knife. The dullest knife scraped each bone tip, burying it and cleaning it. Our hands rotated the knives in our hands. When done with the knife work, we tied the ends together, forming a circular and crown-like presentation of the 14 ribs. We cleaned and cared for the knives. Well, except for that kitchen table knife. That poor thing got tossed in the dishwasher. Each section of the knife had a purpose. Each grip anticipated the next movement. During the holiday, we cut through potatoes for latkes. We served up duck and turkey, and we prepared fish for the seafood chowder. None of this is a surprise to the musician, the cook, the plumber, the woodworker, the stonemason, the lawyer, the surgeon, or anyone who has mastered a craft. Don't hand a surgeon a number 11 blade when a number 10 is requested. What is the strength of my chef's knife? It is a multi-purpose utility knife. It's pretty good at a lot of jobs. It's the right size and weight for cutting and chopping veg. It can work around a bird or on a large cut of meat. The primary strength of my chef's knife is the edge. It is the sharpest knife. And what's its weakness? Oh, lots of things. It doesn't maneuver around bone like my boning knife. I can just pick and flick at connective tissue with my boning knife. Carrots and potatoes stick to the side of the blade. And after this holiday feast, I observe that I have sharpened my German steel to an angle that is too acute or too fine. The factory grind provides Rachel's knife with a more stable edge. Mine has some microscopic chips in it. What about off-book uses? I love smashing garlic under the flat of a knife. I grind garlic to a paste using the dull side of the blade. I smash a garlic head with the pummel or butt of the knife. What about off-book uses for my favorite axe? I too often, with these bad knees, use the damn thing as a walking stick. It's a terrible walking stick and not a very good hammer. But who wants to carry a lot of tools? What about off-book uses for our Oracle database or our programming language PLSQL or our rapid development framework called Apex? I'm stumped. I have used SQL for doing working out in basic math. Where others may have opened a spreadsheet or a calculator, I am happy pushing a formula through Oracle. I've used it as a calculator to inform me how many days exist between now and, say, my birthday. Heck, We've used an Oracle database to upload and manage 400,000 PDF documents to AWS S3 cloud-based storage. I don't think that was ever in the vision of the original designers. Lesson two, take care of your tools. The axe I use for trail maintenance is stored in a leather guard. The edge is shiny and reasonably sharp. Not like the sharp I have on the knives. The care of the knives includes dozens of tricks to protect the sharp edge. Never scrape with the sharp edge, never whack at a bone with the sharp edge, and when done, I wash with care and then dry. In November and December of 2020, I learned that major software vendors suffered from significant breaches from bad actors. SolarWinds and Microsoft both got hit, and by that I mean hacked. For those of us that watch and track these behavior, the hacks bring us concern. SolarWinds is a suite of tools used by IT professionals to monitor their own tools. Using SolarWinds 
constituted good practice for decades. You'd get graphs of performance notification of aberrant events. It's the tool for the people you depend on to keep your technology safe and functional. My partner and I debated bringing it on into our infrastructure, but we found AWS met our needs without added cost. And it's really the first time in decades that I haven't had SolarWinds or its competitors deeply ingrained into our operations. But we do use Microsoft in all of the same ways that Microsoft customers got impacted with the hack. That's close. Frankly, it's all close. Software and IT people constantly worry and mitigate against these threats. It is very real work and part of every day's thoughts, part of every week's effort, and part of every annual plan. Taking care of your tools includes affirmatively making the steps to improve the security posture of our systems, like washing my knife, then drying with a soft cloth. We patch our system, monitor our servers, maintain a constant vigil for the bad stuff that goes on. There was a series of days in 2018 when our graph showed more and more red. Red is bad. Somebody, something started impacting our customers and our performance. It started the day that the government of Puerto Rico published the link for our software on their website. We got hit and hit hard from Eastern Europe and South Asia. We worked through it step by step, minute by minute. Had we not been prepared and taken care of our tools, we would have been swamped. The adage holds true. Take care of your tools and your tools will take care of you. The process involves that careful, disciplined, and affirmative effort nearly daily and within each action, really. Lesson three, develop skills, practices, and strengthen your abilities regularly. Stephen Covey wrote a book about some pretty good habits. Amongst them was sharpening the saw. This Polestar phrase reminds us to seek continual improvement and renewal professionally and personally. I have nothing to add to Covey's statements. Some portion of every day I find a, a way to learn something new and explore, lending to my love of online instructional videos. The community of Oracle Apex developers People scattered around the globe have found a way to rally professionally on Twitter, on Slack, and on a website called apex.world. We share with each other and we observe each other as peers. We learn from each other and as such, we appreciate each other professionally. And I am thankful for this community. Lesson four, know the difference between the right tool, a good enough tool, and the wrong tool. In any moment, The wrong tool serves as the right tool, and it often doesn't matter. My favorite axe helps trim limbs, makes pointy tips, then helps me drive them into the ground as fence stakes. When programming, we often face similar problems. My chosen programming languages have weaknesses. A few years ago, when working with JSON data in an Oracle database, the process of converting and rendering the data useful required boatloads of code. People informed me that I was using the wrong tool. It was inefficient. In fact, they were telling me that I was wrong. Not so. Oracle's PLSQL represented a good enough tool during those days. And I stood at the leading edge of their technology. A wave of continuous development and innovation let me feel like I was riding a wave. In time, my good enough tool became the right tool. Thank you, Oracle.
Regardless, it was the right tool for me. Oracle PSQL is a language that I have used since first learning Turbo Pascal in the 1980s. I'm pretty good at it. Learning new languages when having absolute mastery of one is not hard. That's not really the point of the statement in the framework of a team. We know our strengths. We know our mission. We know the objectives. Collaborating with a teammate this week, I asked this human to write a narrative of a complex process. A word processor, such as Microsoft Word, is ideal at this task. I'm writing this episode in Microsoft Word. It's the right tool. Throughout the work, the teammate tried to communicate programming instructions in the same tool. Microsoft Word behaves like an idiot. It lays squiggly lines informing us of typos and misspellings. It wants to enforce proper formatting. It hates the capitalization of our programming. Word makes pretty code look entirely ugly. Most non-programmers think that our code looks ugly anyway. And here is old Word reinforcing the wrong message. Frankly, we don't have a good tool for blending programming code and narrative text. They're incompatible. So Word becomes the good enough. Hate it the least option. We all get to ask, what is the right tool? What will it take to learn it, find it, use it? As a team, we evaluate these questions together and rather constantly. I entitled this chapter, How to Hold an Axe. Letting an axe stand in for 8,000 years of tools. The phrase we tend to use is lean into at PLSQL, lean into Apex. The phrase means to remind the team to learn, to actively study the tools we use, to find the optimal and most powerful ways of using these tools made by other toolsmiths. Know the weaknesses and the strengths. Asking a teammate to trust their tools serves as a challenge. First, to know that you make optimal and strong decisions, or if not, why not? In closing, recognizing a team that functions well can be a joy. Watching athletes coordinate efforts while pushing a bowl down the pitch closer to a goal fills us with joy. The nonverbal communication follows drills and discussions and the development of team-focused verbal shorthands. We all know how to encode complex messages and quick phrases with coworkers. You never really want to start each message from scratch. When asking a toolsmith if they understand the power of their tools, we also see new opportunities. Maybe we see the need to create new tools. Maybe we should improve the tools we have. Maybe it doesn't matter at all. The goal of any team is to score points and move closer to the objective. Whether filming a movie, writing software, pushing a ball across a field, or trimming tree limbs along a mountain trail in Vermont. Streamlining communication and developing verbal shorthand stands as a common element with strong teams. The Soul of an Internet Machine is a copyrighted production of Fire Media LLC 2020, all rights reserved. You can find me at my website, christinamore.us. Email is okay too, christina at christinamore.us. Mm-hmm.